Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to talk about the recent Freedom Flotilla 3 that left from Sweden and unfortunately was intercepted in international waters by the Israeli Defense Force. And fortunately, no one was injured. At least we don't have reports to that effect yet. We are very fortunate tonight to have with us Paul LaRudy, who is a independent pro-peace missionary, and he's the co-founder of the Free Gaza Movement. And that's freegaza.org is his website, or at least one of his websites. And we'll talk a little bit more with Paul here. But I think there's a number of significant things that, even though they weren't successful to try to break the blockade, which violates all international laws, there were 14 different countries represented in the flotel. There were four vessels all told. The Marianne of Gothenburg was the one that was captured by the Israelis. The smaller boats actually took flight because the same fate would have happened to them. The countries, in addition to Sweden, were Norway, and there were some people of importance. Oslam Sarah Setkik is an MP from Norway. Anna Miranda from Spain is in the European Parliament. And you had Tunisian former President Monsel Marzuki. And from Canada was Robert Lovelace. He was the former chief of the Ardok Algonquin Nation. And uh, actually a, a very significant uh, participant was Israeli Arab Palestinian Basil Gattis, who is a Knesset member. And of course, Throwing his hat into to the lot with the Gaza flotilla caused a lot of stir in Israel, of course. You had from Greece a former MP, Odysseus Boudouris, and from Morocco an MP, Abzuid El Makri El Mirdisi, and from Jordan another MP, Yaha Abo Sud. And then from the United States, Ann Wright, who's a uh, former U.S. Army colonel and a retired U.S. State Department official, along with uh, Joe Meters, who was a survivor of the 1967 attack by the Israelis on the USS Liberty, where 34 American sailors were killed and 171 of the sailors were injured, and the ship was left to sink, actually. Uh, it's quite a story. So let's take a look now at, at this latest version, and so welcome, Paul, uh, to to our podcast here, and maybe you want to start out a little bit about your background and what prompted you to get in the first Freedom Flotilla to Gaza back in 2010, ladies and gentlemen. That's the case where the Israelis actually killed nine or ten. I get conflicting reports, depending on the sources, of the the activists 
were actually killed by the Israelis when they came and commandeered the ship in international waters. And Paul was a member of the flotilla. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. My participation in freegaza.org is not a website that I would claim to be currently affiliated with. But my affiliation goes back to the creation of the Free Gaza Movement in, you could say, the end of 2006. And it was motivated by the expulsion by Israel of numerous activists who were working for Palestinian nonviolent resistance. And I was one of those. And uh, a number of us decided that we were not going to simply accept being exiled in this way, that we were going to confront Israel directly, nonetheless. And with some uh, passing around of ideas, we finally settled on the idea of sending boats to Gaza because Gaza was on the coast and we could challenge them in that way. So the result of that was after fundraising and uh, publicizing for two years in 2008, we actually went there on two small boats, and this was followed by, by four other arrivals in Gaza during 2008. And then in 2009, from then on, after the attack on Gaza that began at the end of 2008, there wasn't any ship that arrived in Gaza by sea. All were attacked, uh, driven away, hauled into port, whatever, but, but none of them were taken into, were permitted to enter Gaza. So the large flotilla, the first one in 2010, a lot of us know the story that it was attacked and so forth, I was at that time with the, the Free Palestine Movement, an offshoot of uh, Free Gaza. We had a delegation of five uh, people, including myself and former ambassador, U.S. Ambassador Ed Peck, and Joe Metters, who was uh, on the USS Liberty, as you mentioned, in, in 67. And so we were part of that. We were not on the Mavi Marmara, and we didn't find out until later what happened on that boat. We were all on a Greek ship, the Svendoni, and we all resisted. I'm a practitioner of what I call extreme non-cooperation, and because of that, I jumped over the side of the boat to, to try to just cause them to delay what they were doing and to make things difficult for them. And it worked because they had to send another ship to pick me up and I, I didn't cooperate with them either and so forth. But I was harmed, physically harmed for doing that. But obviously that pales by comparison to the deaths and very severe injuries that were suffered on the Mavi Marmara. And fortunately, since then, we have had nothing quite that severe. And that's true with uh, the, the current, the third freedom flotilla, as it's being called. And only one ship was captured this time as well. So that's kind of the, the background to all of this. 
Well, I have a question here, Paul. Uh, one of the things we've noted is there's been sort of a, a blackout in the media. There are some articles. I've seen a few in the U.S. now, Washington Post and places. But major media has pretty much ignored what's going on. Certainly Al Jazeera and Press TV, the Iranian, have, have covered it. Is this getting less coverage than when you went in 2010? And also, it, what? why is this being done when everybody knows that fighting the Israeli military is almost impossible? I mean, the only way you could get into Israel is, is if the, the flotilla was accompanied by U.S. battleships, and we know that's not going to happen. Right. As I understand it, the, the motive behind this, and I'm not really one of the organizers, although I'm with one of the participating organizations, the International Committee for Breaking the Siege of Gaza, and they are one of the organizers, and we tried to get uh, Cynthia McKinney to go. This did not work out. It's not her fault. It's not their fault or anything, but it, it just didn't happen this time. So I was assisting in that capacity, but I was by no means one of the planners of, of this particular action. As I understand it, the motive is to show the Israelis that we're not going to give up and to make that same statement to the Palestinians in Gaza because they need to know that there are people who care about what happens and are trying to do what they can. But there is a question about how effective it is. And I think it's legitimate to say that it's having less impact for various reasons, one of which is that people aren't getting killed. Uh, and I'm, that's certainly not a statement, an advocate. I'm not advocating uh, that people should be killed. I'm just saying that this is the nature of, of news gathering. Furthermore, it's been done several times. And, and in this case, the outcome was more or less foreseen in advance. So it's great that we got these dames of uh, participants, and it will be important to follow what happens to these people, especially to Basil Rattas, the uh, member of the Knesset who is there. He's probably going to pay a price for this. Uh, he's not the first member of the Knesset to come aboard. Hanin Zabi was on the Mavi Marmara when it, it was attacked, and she, of course, has, has been physically handled in, in the Knesset, in, in, and she's put up a very brave fight, but she has suffered quite a bit for standing up for her, her rights as a human being and as a Palestinian. According to this article from the Washington Post, Hanin Zawabi uh, was suspended from the Knesset in 2011 for participation in the flotilla. So that's the kind of uh, response we would expect in Israel. It's interesting that a lot of the debate, of course, is in Israel. There's a lot of coverage. You can find the Jerusalem Post and Haritz that have covered the, the debate because it's, it's a hot item. In Israel, one of the flotilla veterans is a guy named Dror Thaler, who is actually Israeli citizen, and he lives now in Sweden. And according to this Jerusalem Post article, the Israeli-born activist now resides in Sweden has, and has been banned from entering Israel until 
2022 due to his participation in past flotillas. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. His mother lives there as well, lives in Israel. Well, Paul, I want to really thank you for what you've done. It's, it may seem uh, that it's painfully slow, and it certainly is, but I don't know where the knowledge would be without what you've done and without someone taking those brave moves of saying we're going in and forcing Israel to pirate you in international waters is bound to uh, to gain progress. And we're seeing some of the, the same kind of slow progress among the churches, the Christian churches that we have been confronting because of their posture on Israel. But it seems that you're getting nowhere, but little by little, uh, you do gain, and uh, it comes from places you least expect. The United Church of Christ has just voted to boycott Israel, and the United Church of Christ is one of the oldest denominations and one of the stuffiest and uh, least seemingly active of the churches, but they've joined uh, several others now in, in actually speaking out and taking a position, and the American Episcopal Church is now studying the same issue. So you make a little progress as you go along, it seems, but it's, it's slow going. Thanks. Well, thanks to your efforts, and this is, this is important, uh, what the churches are doing. I actually think that we're at a turning point right now in the resistance to uh, Israel. And the turning point it can be characterized by the saying attributed to Gandhi, but I'm not sure that it was him, said that first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And I think we're beginning to get past the, the stage at which they, which they laugh at you, because Israel is now faced with a lot of problems on U.S. university campuses. There, almost every university has a Students for Justice in Palestine uh, section, and they have taken up the question of divestment from Israel and so forth. Uh, Israel is being challenged in like never before, which is not to say that they're really suffering, but nevertheless, uh, I think that from a strategic point of view, Israel is saying, well, look, we're trying to, to preserve our good name while committing ethnic cleansing and genocide, and that's a hard thing to do. So beyond a certain point, we have to face it, the fact that we're not going to be able to preserve our good name. We'll, we'll, we'll have to uh, change tactics in this battle and crush our opponents. So that's why you're beginning to see things like the California uh, law that was passed making uh, criticism of Israel on university campuses in California a uh, potential infraction um, equated with anti-Semitism and racism. This is a forceful move. It's not a popular move. And, and so these, these are the kinds of tactics that Israel is adopting now, which indicates that we're now at the, at the third stage where Israel is fighting us. So one more stage and we win. <laughs> one more stage. Paul, do you, uh, you, you have been a big supporter of the boycott movement 
investor and sanction movement at one time, and you've also been a critic of it. Could we discuss that just a little bit in this program? Would that be appropriate to discuss where that's going and where you think it should go? Is that a is that a, an answer to uh, this dilemma? I'm happy to discuss it if you want to. By all means. Okay. Well, I think that BDS is a very good and important movement. And the more B and D and S that we do, the better. And it's been relatively effective. It's it's growing. And this is all to the good. My only criticism of it is with regard to the direction that it's taking. And uh, it started in 2005 with the BDS call, which was issued by 173 Palestinian organizations. Today, you would be hard put to find a Palestinian organization that is active in BDS. Most of the organizations that are active in BDS are solidarity organizations, non-Palestinian in Europe, in North America, and in countries around the world, but it's not Palestinian-led, except in a very technical sense that one or two people at the top of the organization are Palestinian. And I have doubts about the constituency that support these uh, individuals. So this is one concern. It really needs to be Palestinian-led in a much broader sense. And I, I, I would be more comfortable seeing a Palestinian movement and being run according to Palestinian will. And one sign of the problem is that the actual wording of the 2005 Palestinian call was changed with the emphasis being on BDS for only a small part of the area, the, the land area, that was taken away from Palestinians, that was stolen from Palestinians who became refugees. And that is the West Bank. The BDS is directed almost exclusively at organizations and agencies that are acting in the West Bank. Almost nothing inside the rest of the land, the bulk land that was taken from Palestinians, and almost nothing is being done with trying to implement the right of return, which is one of three objectives in the BDS call, or for that matter, for equal rights for Palestinians in all of Palestine, uh, including Israel. So these other two objectives are hardly being pursued, and in the case of ending uh, the occupation and seizure of Palestinian land, it's only with respect to less than 20% of, of the land area to which Palestinians belong. So those are some of the criticisms that I have. It, it seems as if the movement is being directed in such a way that it is effective with individual companies and, and, and movements and things, but only with respect to a small part of the problem. Nevertheless, it's important. And uh, all of these uh, boycotts and, 
every act of divestment and any, any sanctions that are issued, these are all very important actions, and the more the better, regardless of, of what this. One thing that we're trying to do, some of the organizations with which I'm affiliated, is to take the, uh, the action of stopping Israeli ships in the port of Oakland, California, and some other similar actions on the west coast of the United States, and trying to spread this worldwide. Israel, of course, as we know, is blocking the port of Gaza. It's preventing all shipping going in and out of Gaza. Well, we can't shut down Israeli shipping completely, but we can, we can make a, a, a dent here by uh, allying ourselves with, uh, with labor groups and so forth, and to stop Israeli ships from loading and unloading in ports throughout the world. If we can do this on a wider scale, I think it might have a quite... Paul, uh, you, ha you were very successful in doing that, I remember, just a few months ago in Oakland. Can you right. tell us a little bit about that experience, which made, it made international press? That the uh, that Israel Israel ships loaded with something were actually parked in the harbor and could not unload and didn't unload. That's actually, right. were, were shuttled. Tell us about it. You can't unload and load cargo if the workers won't do it. And we, as picketers, which came from a variety of groups, we set up a picket line and. The longshore workers respected our picket line. Many of them were sympathetic to us, but even if they weren't, they are very respectful of a, a picket line. And that stopped the workers and gave them an excuse, actually, not to, not to report to work. So uh, two, and you could say three ships, three ships that were scheduled, two of which actually arrived in the port, did not pick up the cargo that they were scheduled to pick up and did not drop off the cargo that they were scheduled to do so. And the following month, this happened in the months of August, September, and October. In November, the Zim shipping line declared that it was no longer going to send Zim ships to the west coast of the United States, period. And that's still in force. That's still in force. So that's a huge victory. But they wanted to keep it quiet, and the press has kept it quiet, mainly, I think, because it's a non-event. It's something that's not happening, and oh. so it doesn't fit widely. Why are you able to arouse this sympathy among dock workers in the West Coast? Do you have an idea what they know about Israel that the rest of the American people don't know, or is it because of their age, or is it because they're in unions? What is it that makes this work? Dock workers, the uh, ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, and especially the Local 10 affiliate in Oakland, California, has a long history of fighting for social causes. It was one of the earliest to refuse to unload South African ships, and it has taken this action. They stopped the unloading of a Zim ship in 2010 in reaction to the attack on the Mavi Marmara. They stopped it for 24 hours, but it was the first action of that kind. And 
So they're aware, and a lot of them understand. We have to keep our alliances with them and educate them, let them know what is happening to their counterparts in Gaza, for example. There is not a single longshore worker in Gaza that has worked since 1967. There hasn't been a ship that has entered the port of Gaza to load or unload since then at least. So when they hear something like that and they they see what happens as it did in Gaza last summer where the the whole place was destroyed and that uh, workers are not allowed to work, they feel a sense of international solidarity. And leadership in Barcelona of the longshore workers there sent a congratulations and a message of solidarity with uh, Oakland for, for that action. There have been three demonstrations in Morocco to stop them ships from calling there. We now have roughly 30 participants from countries around the world that are working on stopping Zim ships in Latin America, in uh, Malaysia, and in South Africa, uh, and throughout Europe, and so forth. So we're hoping that this will spread and that we can really have an impact. If we get enough participation, I think the Zim company will have to go belly up. Okay, that reminds me of what you said a few minutes ago, talking about the students. What is it about the students that's causing them to be respond and to listen? Uh, why, is, why are you getting positive results on campuses? What, what makes that work? The students have been among the first to experience directly what's happening in Palestine through visits, and they are very active on uh, social media and the internet and uh, they bypass they the news don't they sorry they bypass the news that we exactly exactly okay. and even today students whether it's through their education or by educating themselves they learn to be skeptical of uh, what they hear in the in the media so i think that the facts of the case we all know the, the fact that, uh, that Israel is a genocidal, racist nation. The Zionist movement is all about ridding the land of Palestine of its indigenous population and replacing it with an immigrant population of a particular pedigree. And what, what can you call this except racism and yes. genocide? Exactly. Uh, so the facts of the case scream out and a university is a place where things like this catch fire. It, it passes from one, one mouth to the next. They're a community. So, first of all, it's hard to hide things like that, and secondly, it spreads like wildfire. So I'm not at all surprised that the, these groups are fomenting on, on the university campuses. Well, you're giving us some great ideas as, as to places to work, Paul, places where we can have an impact. And we found the same thing true in churches. We've often, when we've done vigils at churches, we've, we've told people, ignore anybody with white hair. Find the kids and talk to them, even if they're only six years old. <laughs> and and uh, right. amazingly, it works. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. 
Uh, Paul, I have, I have a question. It, it seems like Israel has no problem appealing to international law when it comes to their right to exist in the uh, UN resolution uh, passed back in 48 or 46, whatever it was. But their disregard for international law, you know, seizing ships in international waters, do you have any take on that, how they, they use international law when it benefits them and they totally disregard it when it uh, doesn't benefit them? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that's just Israel that does that. F- frankly... I think that international law is useful in terms of drawing up accusations, in terms of setting standards and this kind of thing, but in actual fact, there isn't any nation that on, on earth that I know of that is going to follow those uh, international laws without some kind of compulsion unless they think it's already to their advantage. So they'll they'll follow whatever's to their advantage, and then if it's not to their advantage, they'll say, well, make me. And in most cases, it's the weaker nations that are forced to comply and the stronger nations that refuse to comply. You can see it in the very obvious case of a nuclear development. Iran, according to international law, has all the right in the world to develop nuclear technology. This is part of the international convention. They are prohibited from developing nuclear weapons. And there's not a shred of evidence that they are doing any of that, nor that they even have the intention of doing it. Nevertheless, they are being prosecuted and persecuted internationally for their research into nuclear technology for medicine, for I'm not sure what. But on the other hand, Israel has stolen nuclear fissionable material from the United States, and it has developed probably 200 or more nuclear weapons, and the U.S. State Department certifies on an annual basis that they have no evidence that Israel has any nuclear weapons, which is a necessary uh, certification uh, in order to comply with U.S. law that uh, we cannot provide aid to any country that has nuclear weapons or is developing nuclear weapons. It's nonsense. But they have to do this in order to comply with U.S. law. And the only reason for the discrepancy between the application of this law regarding nuclear technology and nuclear weapons and nuclear nonproliferation, the discrepancy between the way Israel is treated and the way Iran is treated, is because one has powerful nations that are backing it and the other has powerful nations that are repressing it. It's the only explanation. International law be damned. Well said. Thank you. Well, Paul, we hold these truths have been noticing and beginning to develop a theme that we think is very important, and that is that Israel is a pathetically weak country, that it is not a powerhouse economic force, and that it is taking advantage of us and it is and it is mortgaging our children to their practices, to their, to, their, to their habits and practices, even indebting us in the behalf of them. And that uh, Israel is a very 
pale and pathetic country in terms of its ability to even be self-supporting and an unsafe place to invest your money. This is a theme that uh, we've started to develop, and we think that it has traction. We believe that people need to know that Israel is not a stable ally like, say, Germany or France, if you want to term them as being stable. They are really a pathetically weak country with little resources that is living off handouts from others and therefore is, is, is not a dependable friend. We are trying to develop that theme and think that it has value. Chuck, I think that the work that you've done on this is absolutely spectacular, and it's very direct. Anyone can understand it once it's, it's explained to them. And you're absolutely right. Economically, Israel is not a viable state. Beyond the fact that we live in an inter interdependent world, Israel is, in effect, a parasite, uh, yes. parasitical state, great, uh, great economically term. speaking. It survives on the aid and by sapping the resources of other countries, most notably through the sale of arms. Arms are a heavy burden for many of the developing uh, countries. And Israel sells weaponry to these countries, provides what they call expertise to them, advisors and so forth, but they do it in a very, very special way, and they, which is built upon the way in which Israel operates in the United States. That is to say that they ally themselves with, for example, let's take India, for example, they ally themselves with the anti-Muslim racist elements in India, help them to come to power, and then sell them vast quantities of arms and provide them with uh, advisors and, and so forth. But, of course, it's not, it's not just India. Uh, they do this in a more insidious way in the United States. Just imagine, for example trying to get elected to Congress from any state, from any district of any, any state in the United States, uh, on a platform of, uh, we should stop aid, aid to Israel. Ludicrous. Or, or that we should stop our, our uh, support of Israel and, and support the Palestinians instead. Not a chance of ever getting elected in, in Congress. And why? Because the political organization that supports Israel, the so-called Sayanins, which is the, the name that Israel gives to its supporters and operatives who are more loyal to Israel than to the United States or to the, the whole home country, the way they operate to control the political process, they make or break the elected officials in, in a number of different countries, the, the U.S., Canada, uh, France, Great Britain, Hungary, and this is their power. You say that Israel is a weak country. It is weak, as you say, economically and fiscally and, and in terms of finance. That's where they are weak. But they are very powerful through the use of other countries, the way that they capture the uh, political systems and manipulate those political systems to their advantage, get other people to fight the wars that they want to see fought. 
to destroy their neighbors surrounding them in the in the Middle East. And the United States gives in aid, perhaps you could say, $3 billion a year. But the United States has spent trillions of dollars to fight Israel's war and to achieve Israel's objectives with nothing to show for it in terms of benefit to the United States. Now, that's quite an achievement for a, a small, little, weak nation. Yes. Great. Well, I think that we'll end our conversation here. This was fascinating. We thank you so much, Paul, for running the gauntlet from the Gaza Flotilla to the State of Israel uh, and its war machine there. We thank you for uh, joining with us, and thanks for all the questions. Well, it's a pleasure to be with all of you, and uh, I admire the work you're doing. Well, thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.